1966, Time Magazine produced a simple yet evocative cover. Bold red letters printed on a simple black background. The text read, God is dead. The feature article of the magazine was titled similarly, instead though turning it into a question, is God dead? And then the article set about exploring the answer. In so doing, they interviewed and quoted a group of theologians known at the time as, quote, the death of God theologians. The cover was as evocative as the death of God theologians title for their own group and the language they used. Yet reading that future article titled, Is God Dead? It becomes quickly apparent that the sentiment isn't that God is dead. No, it's that yesteryear's understandings of God were either dead or dying. These theologians believed that some accounting must be named, uh, made for the collective traumas of war and death in the first half of the 20th century. They believed also the forces of a rapid modernizing and urbanizing culture uh, was leading to older language about religion becoming increasingly irrelevant. They believed that older language for God even had become too shallow to still be worthy of naming God. Quoting directly from the article here, an old-fashioned personal God who merely judges, gives grace, and speaks to us in prayer is, after all, a pretty feeble God to begin with. They didn't want God to die. They wanted to expand our understandings of God to something more appropriate of such a label. This old-fashioned personal God was dying to mainstream culture, according to the death of God theologians, a death they wanted to fully embrace or perhaps even invite. Yet despite their intentionally evocative language, they held no actual interest in bringing about a death of genuine spirituality. In fact, the Death of God movement was primarily interested in spiritual renewal and health, in deepening and broadening the language and thought around God by one name or another. You remember that Tillich reflected on the crumbling of his faith from, quote, a nice God who would make it all work out in the end. Even in the moments of that crumbling, uh, Tillich said that when the God of religious and theological language disappeared for him, quote, something still remained. Many people around this time, before this time, and since have described something similar. That while some labels or belief systems crumble under the weight of questions, doubts, or trauma, something yet remains. Something actually sacred, something actually divine, more divine maybe even than our older labels that we used to use for self-soothing or comfort. 
Tillich sometimes referred to this sensation as God above God. That Tillich's usage of of God above God uh, in the 20th century so closely approximates Meister uh, Eckhart's 14th century usage of God beyond God is probably not a coincidence. Uh, Tillich was uh, a passionate student of historical theology. More than that, though, the movements towards new understandings of God generally don't begin overnight or are only witnessed by one set of eyes. Many considered Nietzsche's proclamation that God is dead an early witness to the death of God movement nearly a century before. That was 1882. Nietzsche also, by the way, did not mean that God is dead. Yet two decades prior to even Nietzsche's famous words, Victor Hugo wrote the phrase, God is perhaps dead, into the beloved and cherished text that we know as Les Miserables. Even that, though, is language European writers had been rifting on for years and decades prior to either work. Catherine Reckless follows this history of all of it in Can Theology Be Post-Secular? Using the term aesthetics to describe sort of this third way of knowing the God beyond God. According to Reckless, this general understanding goes back to at least Kant's third critique and the space still open to the more than rational since the German romantics. Despite calling for or naming the death of God in their modern era, these theologians from the 60s believed they were either representing or fulfilling historical views. Tillich often said his uh, views were, quote, the common opinion of classic theology in practically all periods of church history. I mean, heck, Look at the Bible. Matthew chapter 7 tells a story about people who think they know God, but are told they never knew the real God. Is this in some way the difference between God and the God above God? The Old Testament is full of stories of people replacing local customs or idols with worship of the true God. Rabbi Arthur Waskow adds the book of Exodus is even known as the book of names, directly suggesting that sometimes God indeed needs new names. After all, says Rabbi Waskow, quote, an old name cannot inspire a new sense of reality. God is different when the world is different. While death of God, theologians drew from influences throughout the 20th century and even decades and centuries prior, their heyday of relevancy was in the mid to late 1960s. At least four prominent books were published between 1965 and 1967, with the Time magazine covering centering that window in 1966. This is important because the 1960s was generally a time of great social and political upheaval in of itself. It's on this backdrop we get the civil rights movement, we get Martin Luther King, and we get some wonderful music. 
too much to name or explore, but I will name for this conversation one, Bob Dylan, who drew upon this same backdrop of culture when he wrote the words to one of my favorite songs in the mid-60s, The Times, They Are A-Changin'. Painted with a generous brush, perhaps Dylan's civil rights anthem puts voice to the undertone of much of the Death of God movement. Currents were shifting in culture, and people wanted to name them, recognize them, and attempt to deal with how to constructively respond to bring about a more just and divine tomorrow. One of the verses to the beloved civil rights anthem goes like this. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. For the times, they are a-changin'. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. I don't want to be violent, don't want to have a vendetta. I don't want to be vengeful, no I don't want to be a soldier Don't want to be militaristic Don't want to help that cycle I just want to be A countercultural pacifist I don't want to be a racist Don't want to be a capitalist Don't want to be sexist, no I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving, organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration. I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao. I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Berlin, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. I just want to be me. Hey, Dunker Punks. When I say theologian, 
I'm curious what images or associations come to your mind. I'm guessing not people proclaiming God is dead. (laughs) I'm guessing not people proclaiming God is dead in big, bold red letters on the cover of Time magazine. But maybe this is the sort of theology we need a little bit more of in our life. Maybe it's the sort you need a little bit more of in your life. People who aren't interested in cut and dry answers to questions that could never have cut and dry answers. People wrestling with the big questions and admitting their fears and doubts and yet still finding some constructive spirituality in a God underneath and beyond all of it. What remains when older constructs of faith fade away or crumble to the ground? What's beyond even our naming of God? We're exploring this question further in this episode, part two of our four-part summer series on theopoetics. I'm Matt Riddle again, he, him, pronouns, with the Arlington Church of the Brethren, as we explore and discuss together what it means to have a hospitable, constructive faith that has room for all of our doubts and all of our questions. As we bring our full selves to this series, I can't wait to explore together. And with that, I'd like to bring Scott Holland back to the conversation, Slabaugh Professor of Theology and Culture and Director of Peace Studies at Bethany Theological Seminary in partnership with the Earlham School of Religion. Hey, Scott. Hi, Matt. In our last episode, we talked about the movement from sort of a first phase of life of a strictly ordered version of faith to a second phase or box. It can feel like a risk moving to that second box because it can feel like a loss of faith. We know some people consciously decide to take that journey, but others experience a trauma that may sort of push them against their will into that second box. Richard Rohr calls the second box disorder. Disorientation could be another term, which Walter Brueggemann uses. Some, like Brian McLaren, even use deconstruction to recognize that sometimes we need to sort of actively engage in deconstructing a version of faith that was too innocent or hurtful before we're able to reassemble our faith later, but first we must engage in this deconstructive act. So this episode will sort of focus right there, Scott. So let's assume if someone is fully now in disorientation, disorder, or maybe actively deconstructing, Scott, how might poetry or theopoetics help someone explore their questions? Yeah, great question. I would remind all who ask questions like this, especially a pastor like you, Matt, to imagine scripture. Scripture itself is filled with poetry. And through the evolution of theology, doctrine, more systematic ways of naming God, 
some of the poetry of the Bible became eclipsed. And one of the founders of the Theopoetics movement, uh, Amos Wilder, uh, had a brother, Thornton Wilder, the great American writer. And Thornton once approached his brother Amos. Amos was a theologian, biblical scholar at Harvard Divinity School. And Thornton, the creative writer, said to his brother, you know, we are both persons of faith. We're both Christians. And when I read what you theologians and even biblical scholars write, I don't see the poetry. But when I look at the scripture, there's a great deal of poetry, parable, creative prayers, confessions of deep spirituality. What we're doing in Theopoetics, and Amos Wilder was an early thinker, writer, scholar, who in the company of Stanley Hopper and David Miller coined the term Theopoetics, we're really attempting uh, to recover the poetics of spirituality. And if God is beyond any iron cage of linguistic perfection, and God can best be named perhaps in metaphor, then poetic language, far more than propositional language, can help open up our imaginings, our feelings, emotions, our ways of thinking and even feeling around the possibilities of God. A beautiful reminder that the goal of deconstructing and eventual reconstructing, that the spirit of that quizzical prayer we heard in episode one, God, deliver me from God. The goal of this entire process is actually a faith more grounded in biblical tradition than we started with. It might feel to us in the moment as something inventive or creative or kind of out there, particularly because it's so different than what others used to tell us we should believe or experience. Uh, Scott, but I hear you saying we would do well to remember, ultimately, though, we are returning, returning to the poetics contained right within the sacred texts themselves. I know this is something I have experienced firsthand. Yeah, it's it's there. It's in the poetic text of scripture, and it's also present in, I think, some of the best poetry of current poets. And, you know, often uh, when I am asked to talk about theopoetics at a religious gathering in a church, if you will, uh, there is often someone who says to me, you know, I just don't like poetry. I'm, I'm here. I'm willing to listen, but I just don't like poetry. And I say, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry you have so little appreciation for the scriptures, because think, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want a beautiful poem. And 
And I guess you don't like singing hymns either because hymnody is really um, the lyricism of the poetic. And of course, I'm being playful. And of course, they get the point. So many hymns are, are poetry set to music, flat out. We have the great brother and songwriter, Ken Morse, whom we forget is a poet as well. Brethren Press literally has a book of Ken Morse poetry available for purchase. It's a wonderful collection. Well, Scott, without getting uh, too lost in the weeds of trying to define uh, anything, I thought we might compare for a second these two words, theology and theopoetics. Theology is a term many people view as sort of heady. Pastors might be good at it. Uh, we might go to seminary to learn about theology. Versus, as we've been hearing in this series, theopoetics. It's hard not to note they both have this root theo, uh, which I think might be Latin, but we're replacing uh, logi with poetic. Uh, can you translate the original languages a bit and, and tell us more about uh, the different structuring of these words and what that might mean? Yeah, we can do Latin, we can do Greek, we can do Hebrew. Um, when, when we say... Theo or Theos, uh, God, the divine, um, poesis or poetic, it is not simply versifying. That is to say, it is not simply a poem in verse as poesis is translated more broadly, but it is an act of creativity. It is an act of making. As some would say, it is a, an act of imaginative construction or composition. So when we say theopoetics, we're talking about um, creative, constructive, writing, composing, thinking, talking about God. Uh, theology proper, in its earliest sense, really simply meant uh, Theos, logos, words about God or God talk. And I'm afraid that over time, a lot of theology began to look and sound far more like German engineering than poetry. And so we in Theopoetics are trying to recover the sense of the poetic and the sense that most spiritual language is musical, is lyrical, is poetic, is parabolic, is metaphorical, is symbolic, rather than flatly propositional. Yeah, it's musical, lyrical, symbolic, metaphoric, uh, and yet real. All we have are sort of symbols and imageries and metaphors, and so we use them to try to refer to that deeper thing, that God beyond God, uh, that God is more than, uh, well, <laughs> to continue your humorous expression earlier, uh, our faith in God and our study of God should lead us to more than just German engineering. 
I like that so much. Uh, it's more than just than what we can quantify and write down uh, where we might begin to accidentally limit God to what's definable or describable, um, that we're instead invited into a mystery, something profoundly deep, something deeper than even the words we might use to describe it. Yet, as I consider why and how we got here as a culture, how did we end up with a predominant model of faith to be this German engineering model? Um, I wonder if that's in part because so many theologians in history have sort of looked and talked similarly to each other. Uh, when I, I took history of Christianity in seminary, you study a lot of church theology, a lot of theologians in history. When the class was over, I asked the professor once, you know, don't do too much research, but can you just kind of try to estimate what percentage of theologians we studied in class were uh, male, likely straight, and white, or at least a part of their culture's dominant ethnicity? The teacher estimated around 80%. That is strikingly high. So, Scott, as we study theopoetics, Tell me, are we starting to recapture those other voices that we have ignored for too long? Oh, we have a great diversity of poetic and theopoetic voices we bring into every classroom deliberately because we feel very strongly in what we call uh, an intercultural hermeneutic, which is a way of saying intercultural interpretations of what it means to be human, what it means to be spiritual, what it means to catch a glimpse of faith that means something for us today. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. Uh, I've often wondered and tried to empathize uh, if you were a person in history who felt like you you caught that glimpse of the divine, as you put it, but uh, you didn't fit that mold that other theologians had carved out, where would you go? Uh, you might end up as a storyteller or poet or artist, who knows? So I think part of looking beyond just theologians in history is also recapturing sort of the fuller extent of people who have caught glimpses of horizons that we might benefit from seeing through their eyes. I wonder if you could help me explore this. Uh, as someone deconstructs a previous version of their faith, they might in this phase be actively sort of picking and choosing which parts of their faith they're even going to hang on to, and they might have a lot of questions about um, new ideas or what it might all mean. So during this, why might it be helpful to hear from those diverse and previously ignored voices from the margins? How might poetry or theopoetics help someone understand their own humanity better and their relationship with the divine? Part of what we're trying to really move to in, in theopoetics is a more profound understanding of, of what it means to be human. As people of faith, we, we often say that Jesus came via the incarnation so that 
we could be more like the divine, some in the Eastern Church have said, yes, that is very much the case, but also Jesus came in the incarnation to show us what it means to be more profoundly and deeply human. And I think these many voices of humanity from the margins and occasionally the voices from the center as well uh, invite us into a path of human flourishing. And um, we believe, I think, in theopoetics of being very inclusive in not only our poetics, but in our vision of life. But beyond being inclusive, we want to be expansive as well and to, to see beyond what the great poet uh, Coleridge called seeing beyond the first range of hills. We can often get caught in our vision and it becomes fixed on that very familiar first range of hills, as lovely as it might be. But when we explore the many possibilities within poetics, theopoetics, it invites us to see beyond that first range of hills and our vision becomes much more expansive as well as being inclusive. Could you talk for a bit about um, straight white cis men have typically placed their own stories at the center of the human experience? And yet maybe those people with the most privilege have still struggled to see beyond the first range of hills. I'm curious, could could you talk a bit about this, how maybe living a life on the margins, not not as a marginal human, but as a person that's been forced to live on the margins and walk these kind of other paths. Um, is there something unique about that experience that might help people see beyond that first range of hills to catch visions of other hills? Yeah, I think a, a question um, that we can ponder and we do ponder in uh, Theopoetics is when, when God meets us, does God meet us most often in the center of history or on the margins? And uh, if we do a creative and poetic reading of the Jesus story, I think the answer is so often from the margins. And I think some of us, Matt, who are well-educated, white, cisgender men, see from the perspective in which we were formed, not only psychologically, uh, not only um, theologically, but also with all of the, the cultural biases and uh, master narratives that are supposed to apply to, to us. So I think in being attentive to other people's stories, to other people's poetry, enables us to have a more expanded view of what it means really to be in this world. And I think those uh, who are on the margins walk different paths. Um, 
then perhaps we have chosen to walk or would even imagine walking. I like what you're saying about the Bible and where does God show up? Uh, I'm thinking in the Old Testament, you have uh, old Egypt and the empire, Uh, but God doesn't show up to the emperor. God shows up in this little baby in a basket floating down the river, this unexpected source off to the side, right? That seems to be in, in the biblical accounts so often where God meets people. I also love how you put it, um, people who have walked paths we couldn't even imagine. Uh, that's something I'm trying to be so aware of as a, a straight, white, cis male. I think that is so well put. Uh, and how, does the, how do those different paths enable people to see different hillsides and have different viewpoints that, that everyone may need to consider, I'm thinking about a a practical example of this. This last July 4th in worship, I thought about what we might reflect on. And I thought, you know, some churches might bring up, say, America the Beautiful and sing about spacious skies and beautiful landscape. But instead, I had our people, we turned to Langston Hughes. So we reflected on what it might mean for a man to say, let it America be the dream that it was meant to be but it's never been America to me. Or uh, we could um, read Amanda Gorman and revisit uh, her inaugural poem and then read her poetry beyond that inaugural poem and see the breadth of what she is at work on. Yeah, I think um, we shouldn't live if we want to live well uh, in, in any monoculture, but, but open ourselves to many literatures and actually uh, experience uh, many different poetics of place, which is to say, um, move freely and um, joyfully in many human circles, even in our work for justice against many of the injustices, uh, stand in solidarity with a wide range of those who are advocates on behalf of a deep democracy, as Whitman would call it, and on behalf of a just peace. Scott, I've been fortunate to be with you in several spaces where you've used poetry, uh, sometimes against people's own wills, Uh, definitely against their expectations to help heal people, to help start these rich and meaningful conversations about faith, um, to help people explore their own stories and uncover their own pains that need healing. Um, I'm wondering how you view this. Uh, In short, how you view poetry and theopoetics. Uh, uh, Here's my theory. Uh, Almost like saying God beyond the God we name, is it safe to say that poetry isn't the point. We're trying to get to that beyond, you know, is poetry for you just like a placeholder? It's it's a vessel uh, for an invitation into something deeper. I think that's right. We often say in our theopoetics musings that uh, we read a poem in order to invite yet another poem. That is to say, to call forth something 
uh, from the listener or from the reader. It isn't simply about uh, our skill at versifying. Uh, it is rather uh, the profound possibilities of, of invitation that comes in meditating on or listening to a poem that intersects with one's own life or invites one maybe to move beyond this poem to their own poetics of life. I love that. And let's borrow the phrase. We read a poem to invite another poem. Uh, this phrase strikes me as a universal truth. We can sort of fill in the blank on, right? We tell a story to invite another story. We tell a joke that offers insight to life to invite more comedy that's even more insightful. This could apply to art or storytelling, music, the theater, and more perhaps definitely though, to nature. From poets like uh, Wendell Berry to just uh, an everyday experience of sitting on a porch or, or walking through a park, nature can be a way of reconnecting people to that deeper thing, that thing beyond what we even name. Uh, I'm curious to get your reaction to this quote that I love, Scott. This is from prolific and beloved writer Anne Lamott. Standing in the forest, I didn't need to understand perfect or complex ideas of theology. I just needed to surrender myself to whoever created the forest around me. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um Standing in the presence of the creation can invite us into a deep connection with the creator of all things. I, I've been really amazed in life how many different ways we might connect to the creator of all things. We just named several, uh, but let me be sacrilegious for a minute and name one more. Uh, for me, sometimes it's watching TV. Or, or movies. I, I never quite understood why. I always felt a little lazy feeling that way. Uh, and I had an enlightening moment finally. Uh, one day I read that the Obama administration had appointed a national director of play uh, designed around children. Uh, in this department, this person released a document at one point, sort of a, a twist on love languages. They released a document describing play languages that children might use to learn about life from. One of the play languages named was storytelling. I think that's the compelling part about certain media for me. Um, the stories we can engage in and observe through uh, podcasts or movies or a play or any media, really, it, it's sort of, it's an invitation to see beyond a hill we've struggled to see beyond, even if it's through a, a fictional character's experiences. It's that invitation then to tell or live our own story in response. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, Elie Wiesel, quoting his rabbinical grandfathers about the importance of stories, uh, back to this notion of we tell in order to, they would say that we tell a holy story 
in order to find yet another holy story. And again, we tell in order to find or to compose. This reminds me a lot of almost jazz and preaching at the same time. Uh, that in jazz, we experience this playfulness between instruments, building off each other, one solo passing to another solo. Uh, in a way, that's almost what we do as a people of faith when we gather on a Sunday. Uh, that it's not about hearing the pastor teach about this one biblical story, yay, we learned it, right? That's not the point. The point is that the story might invite a response with the story of people's lives after the service, too. The biblical story inviting sort of a, a later harmonization with people's lives, right? Yeah. And, and if we're using the analogy to jazz, it doesn't always have to harmonize because actually in jazz, there is a more of a polyphony than a harmony. And that's okay. Uh, sometimes in church, we feel that we must all harmonize and harmony is beautiful. I like harmony. Um, brethren can enter into four part harmony quite well. But the notion of polyphony, that's more jazzy, where not everything harmonizes, yet it nevertheless hangs together in a kind of musical pleasure, that likewise, I think, has great value. Scott, I love what you're saying. I hope people can hear the encouragement to polyphony, not just as a, a general statement, it's a reminder, I think, that we're allowed to live our own faith out how we see fit. There's a, a, a temptation to try to live in direct harmony, but sometimes polyphony is beautiful too. I, uh, okay, I'm remembering, it's a story from a book I just finished, uh, God Improv and the Art of Living, uh, this wonderful uh, book about yes and written by uh, Marianne uh, McKinnon Dana. She tells the story that's not hers, but it was unfamiliar to me prior to her retelling. You have jazz great Winton Marcellus in the throes of a particularly amazing performance and, and night of jazz. And in the middle of it, a cell phone rings in, in the audience. The performance was so compelling. Everyone sort of gasps like, you know, you ruined it. Marcellus paused and then plays the ringtone and then begins riffing on the ringtone, slowly making his way back to where they were before as the band picks back up. It's a reminder, I think, sometimes we can incorporate or adapt our approaches um, to celebrate even the outright mistakes we've made or the interruptions to our flows from the outside, that this can be too a beautiful way we can live the music of life. That's really, that's really a great story. Um, I, when I was pastoring, once had an organist uh, who had Asperger's autism. And uh, at one point during the communion service, uh, I would typically serve him first. His name was Jason, and I forgot and I began to serve the other parishioners. And Jason, um, I love dearly, a great free spirit, 
his hands fell down on the organ keys and it went boom. And then he said, pastor, pastor, don't I get communion? And everyone in the congregation at that solemn moment gasped. And I turned and I said, Jason, everyone in this church gets communion. It is an open table. Of course you get communion. And I went over and served Jason. It was a great moment. <laughs> Speaking of stories, inviting other stories, and the beauty of it all, we're, we're both speaking, I think, to a way we can respond to life, that we may have tough questions, we may have difficult experiences, but we don't have to let them cripple us or shatter uh, what we're going through either. Uh, we can just sort of respond to them um, creatively, adaptively, and then explore uh, what that opens us up to. Um, they don't have to ruin the music of our day or the communion of our lives, that we are free to be adaptive and creative and explore our doubts, our pains, and our curiosities. As we uh, bring this podcast uh, to a close today, Scott, um, I'm wondering if you have a poem you might share with us in this same spirit. Yeah, let me share Liesel Mueller's poem, Things, because we've been talking about many things, but in particular, we've been talking a lot about metaphor and how metaphor functions, not only in naming the God beyond the God we name, but also in our daily lives and how our very living is in many ways uh, a poetic performance. This is Lisa Mueller from her collection, Alive Together, Things. What happened is we grew lonely living among the things. So we gave the clock a face, the chair a back, the table four stout legs, which will never suffer fatigue. We fitted our shoes with tongues as smooth as our own and hung tongues inside bells so we could listen to their emotional language. And because we loved graceful profiles, the pitcher received a lip, the bottle a long slender neck. Even what was beyond us was recast in our image. We gave the country a heart the storm an eye, the cave a mouth, so we could pass into safety. <laughs> <laughs>